The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 139 for the chief musician, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty... What's that? Amen. Oh, all right. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it's verses 10 through 20. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. 
And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Introductory comments are usually the last thing I normally type for each sermon. Some days it's hard to figure out what to say so that it can blend smoothly into the context of what is being presented in the sermon text. As I was typing this sermon, Sergio over in Israel and I were doing what we occasionally do. He was working on a video. I am typing the sermon. He will say, I have four minutes of a 15-minute video left to go. I will say I'm on verse 2 of 10 verses. In that, we have a competition to see where we will each end when the first person is done. While messaging back and forth and to frustrate him into thinking he was getting way behind, I said, I just finished verse XX. Just a few short minutes later, I said, I just finished verses XX and XX. This would be an otherwise impossible message. One verse can take up to an hour. I snickered for a moment. Then I copied and pasted the two verses. Under the first verse, I typed blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Under the second, I typed yada, 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 yada. After that, I said, I bet nobody will even notice. After sending it, I couldn't help thinking that there are some people who actually treat the word like that. As sad as it is, the goal for them doesn't include remembering that this is the word of God, nor is it that they care about the Lord who gave the word. They simply put something together to make people feel good on Sunday morning, and it doesn't matter if it conforms in the least to what the Lord is actually conveying. It breaks my heart. Our text verse comes from Hosea 13. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought, When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. When our hearts get lifted up, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we should. In that, we forget the Lord our God. There are other ways to forget the Lord as well. We can do it out of sheer negligence. We can do it out of spite. We can do it because we are just too busy with life. But I want to tell you today that for those who are the Lord's, He will never forget us. He will never break the covenant promises to us that he had agreed to. But this doesn't mean that we should not worry about our walk with the Lord. On the contrary, I will take you to a passage in the New Testament at the end of our sermon today to show us just the opposite. But the great thing about the Lord is that even if we do forget about him for whatever reason, if we are his, meaning saved by the Lord Jesus, he will never turn his back on us. As I've said before, national Israel is a template for each of us concerning our own state before the Lord. Today, you will see the faithfulness of the Lord in a way that your Bible fails to show you. Of this, I am pretty sure. Now, I say pretty sure, but I say I am certain because I went through 27 versions of the Bible and none of them got it right. But when you see it, I hope it stirs you as much as it stirred me on 21 September of 2020. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. 
Our first of two thoughts today is, and all that you have is multiplied. It's verses 10 through 13. The words of verse 10 fit marvelously into what was said in the previous verses of the chapter. Verse 1 referred to possession of the land. This one does as well. Verse 2 spoke of remembering what the Lord had done for the people in the wilderness. Here, that is contrasted with blessing the Lord in the land. Verse 3 spoke of hungering in the wilderness and then being granted manna. Here, it speaks of being full because of the produce of the land given by the Lord. Verses 4 and 5 spoke of the Lord's care of the people in the wilderness, including his chastening of them. Here, his care of them in the land of their possession is highlighted. Verses 7 through 9 spoke of the things by which the land would be considered good. Here, it acknowledges that it is, in fact, a good land. This is a marvelous summary verse of that entire set of verses. In all of this, it is the Lord, not Israel, who is the center of focus. Israel's the recipient of the Lord's favor, but without the Lord or with the Lord as an enemy, Israel would not exist. It is not by their hand, their power, or their abilities that the goodness they possess comes about, but by the graciousness of the Lord. As it says, verse 10, when you have eaten and are full, ve'akalta ve'savaita, and you shall eat, and you are satisfied. This is the contrast to verse 3, where it noted that the people hungered in the wilderness. At that time, they complained against Moses and Aaron, which means that they complained against the Lord. Here the words are a statement of fact. You shall eat and you are satisfied. Just as they complained in their hunger, they are now actually commanded to do the opposite in the times when they are filled. Verse 10 continues, Then you shall bless the Lord your God, and you shall bless Jehovah your God. It is to be taken as a positive command not simply a general principle. In receiving, you are to bless. To not do so, then, must be considered a transgression of the law. This is shown to be exactingly fulfilled by Jesus Christ even before being filled in the Gospels. When feeding the multitudes, it says, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. Likewise, it says that he blessed the bread on the night of his crucifixion as well. The law is given, and the Lord was obedient to the precept. Verse 10 continues, For the good land which he has given you. Al ha'aretz ha'tova asher natan lach. Upon the land, the good which he has given you. In this, Moses uses the word al, upon the good land, not for the good land. It isn't that they possess a piece of land in another area that they go to visit from time to time, and from which abundance is received. Rather, it is a land upon which they live and receive constant benefit from. The Lord gave them the land. It is a good land, and the Lord has provided for them from that same land. They are to remember, and they are to actively bless the Lord for that which they receive from the land upon which they reside. The idea is that the Lord was always to be at the center of their attention. It is not the land, and it is not those who dwell upon the land, but rather it is the Lord who gave the land who is to be praised. And there is an important reason for this command. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. In the Hebrew, the words from now until verse 18 are one long continuous sentence. It is a detailed explanation of what is sure to come and a warning of what not to forget when it does come. Blessings lie ahead. But in the abundance of those blessings will come an assumption that what has been received has come about through personal effort and not through the blessing of the Lord. In this, Moses first warns them with the word shamar, to keep 
watch or to be attentive to. In this, they are to be attentive to not forgetting Jehovah, their God. He then explains how they will, in fact, forget him. It is, verse 11 continues, by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes. The word commandment is singular. The commandment, judgments, and statutes are from the Lord. It logically follows that in remembering what he is commanded to do, the people will remember the one who is so commanded. In other words, we know the difference between federal crimes and state and local crimes. If someone carries a gun into a post office, the penalties will be different than if he carries a gun into a 7-Eleven in a town where that is not allowed. We remember the source of the law when we remember to observe the law. To shamar, or be attentive to, those various laws means that we are showing regard for the source of them. We may keep the federal laws because we might otherwise be sentenced to many years in federal prison, but we may neglect the local laws because the penalty is just a slap on the wrist. The respect given to the laws of the Lord thus signifies whether a person has a fear of the Lord, a love of the Lord, or some varying degree of contempt for the Lord. And the individual's attitude toward the Lord will inevitably be tied up in the leader's attitude toward the Lord. When the leaders of a nation have no fear of the Lord, the people will follow in that same attitude. We saw that for the previous eight years. The leader is the enforcer of the laws. If he will not enforce the laws set forth, then the people will not either. This is the lesson of the kings of Israel, and it is seen again and again in their record, such as. When I say the previous eight years, I'm excluding the previous four years of our current administration. Such as, now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, that he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel along with him. There you go. Leader goes astray, so do the people. The opposite attitude is seen in the record of King Asa. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa, and they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Of these commands of the Lord, Moses says, verse 11 going on, which I command you today. Here the concept of divine inspiration is once again clearly presented. Moses says that what he conveys are the commandments, statutes, and judgments of the Lord. And yet it is he who is commanding them to Israel. Jesus clearly confirms this as well when he asks the question, what did Moses command you? Or something similar. It is both the word of Moses and it is the law of the Lord. Verse 12, lest when you have eaten and are full. Here is a contrast to the manna. The people simply received what the Lord provided. They couldn't take credit for it at all. Rather, they received it knowing exactly where it came from. They could, and in fact, they did complain about the manna, but they could not deny its source. Here, the food has come from the ground. Vines were pruned, trees were trimmed, the land was tilled, stalks of grain were cut and threshed, and so on. Man's labor was involved in the process. In the exercise of the labor, it is easy to forget the ultimate source of the good things that fill the stomach. Further, verse 12 going on, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. Again, there is a contrast to the time in the wilderness. The people dwelt in tents, and they moved at the command of the Lord. There was no tending to farms and gardens. There was a reliance on the Lord. It is reminiscent of the family of Rahab, who is mentioned in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 35. But they said, 
We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rahab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rahab, our father. In all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. These Rechavites were used by the Lord as an object lesson to Israel of failing to adhere to this exact premise that is now being set forth by Moses in Deuteronomy. Imagine it. These people obeyed the voice of a man, and he had died many generations earlier, and the people of the world cannot obey the voice of the Lord, not even from opening it in the morning to the afternoon when they go do something else. Verse 13, And when your herds and your flocks multiply, animals take effort. They have to be tended to, fed and watered, and stores need to be set aside for the winter when the land isn't producing. The more herds and flocks a person has, the more people he will need to tend to them. The more people beneath the person, then for that person, feelings of greatness tend to result. Further, in having an abundance, one tends to trust in that abundance. He forgets the commands of the Lord to have an open hand to the needy. This is what happened with Nabal in 1 Samuel. David came forth looking for assistance in a time of need. Nabal's response was, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? Nabal was a man who did not care about the law of the Lord because he failed to care about the plight of his fellow Israelite. He trusted in his wealth and forgot the source of that wealth. Verse 13 continues, and your silver and your gold are multiplied. The possession of silver and gold means that the person's wealth extends beyond the property and that which subsists from the property. A person with silver and gold has increased so much from the property that he now has sufficiency beyond the annual harvest season. If there is drought, the money is a buffer for such a time. If the equipment breaks down, it can be fixed by paying someone who is handy in that way, and so on. In the possession of silver and gold, that which is otherwise out of reach becomes readily available. In such a state, everything else increases as well. Verse 13 going on, and all that you have is multiplied. With the coming of surplus, if one is wise, more can be obtained. More land to produce more crops, more animals to produce more meat, wool, leather, and so on. More wives to increase the stress, more children to help with the chores. The cycle of increase leads to personal gain as well. Extra shoes, more garments, extra rooms, which can then be rented out. The multiplication of an industrious man can be great. But for most, that leads naturally to another state. I noticed some women were laughing when I said that. Where does your ability come from? A day at the gym and eating right? Is that the place from whence these come? And also from getting a good sleep at night? Is your wealth amassed high because you are great? Do you have expensive things because of your skill? Is filled your cupboard and overflowing your plate? How did it happen? Tell me the drill. But if you say it was because I am great, or if you say it was because of my skill, I say to you, empty is your plate. You will be unable to pay the final bill. 
Call on the Lord Jesus and include him in every detail. Bless the Lord for each thing he provides. And when you are weighed on his judgment scale, you will receive all the wonder that his heaven provides. Our second thought today is parsing matters. It's verses 14 through 20. Does anybody know what parsing means? It's to take something and to break it down, especially in a syntactical way. I have a sentence, and this is a verb, and this is how the verb is used, etc. Parsing matters. Verse 14, when your heart is lifted up, vevram levavecha, and lifted to your heart. The heart is the seat of reasoning, understanding, and intelligence. In the acquisition of many things, a person thinks within himself, look at all that I have and all that I have done. It is the sin of pride which takes credit for that which one is blessed with. In this, verse 14 going on, and you forget the Lord your God. There is room for only one in the heart of a prideful man. If he is consumed with himself, then he will not remember the Lord his God. It is a certainty. Only a man of humility through and through can avoid the trap of thinking that what he possesses is solely because of his own efforts and greatness. Think of Job. Moses knows this, and so his warning is also a reminder. It isn't just that the Lord is on high and blessing people who are already industrious and blessed to start with. Rather, he notes that Israel is the people of Jehovah, the God, verse 14 continues, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Ha motziacha me'eretz mitzrayim mi'bet abadim, who the bringing out of you from land Egypt from house slavery. The people of Israel, even from the least, even to the greatest, were all as one in Egypt. Egypt means double distress. They were in bondage and they had no way of obtaining their freedom. Their lot was permanent misery. But in the impossibility of their situation and with no chance of relief from it, Jehovah brought them out. Thus, whatever they possessed from a thread to a sandal strap or from a boundary stone to a king's palace, all of it was because the Lord had first delivered them to it, and then he had delivered it to them. The words here are prophetic in nature. It's not just that such might happen. Moses knows it is certain to happen, and it did. 2 Chronicles 26 details the greatness of King Uzziah and how it came about. It says there, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. What is then said of him mirrors the thought of verses 11 through 13, so exactingly that after the many blessings, it then says of King Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 26, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, exactly what he's being warned about right here, to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah, the priest, went in after him, And with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of this sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Though the king of Israel and a man of wisdom and great achievement, Uzziah was a son of slaves. Were it not for the Lord, he and his people would still be in bondage. Were it not for the Lord, his line would not have ascended to the throne. Were it not for the Lord, Jerusalem would not be the city of Israelite kings, but the city of the Jebusites. There is no part of the existence of Uzziah, or any of us for that matter, that is separate from the Lord's hand in our lives. Our very breath is derived from him, 
and will someday return to him. And yet we look to our own greatness and forget the Lord our God. Most importantly, we were in bondage. We could not save ourselves, and yet he intervened to free us unto himself. And even in our salvation, we are still not free from the world in which we live. Our walk is one of trial to this day. Does anybody disagree with that? Just as Israel's was. Verse 15, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness? Hamoli kaha bamidbar hagadol vehanora. Who the leading of you in the wilderness, the great and the terrible. This is referring to the march from Egypt to Sinai and then to the border of Canaan. It may also include the time after turning from Canaan under punishment, but that is not necessarily so. The term Hagadol, or the great, speaks of the vastness of the area. The term Hanorah, or the terrible, speaks of that which is fearful or awesome. The location is so barren and so dry that it cannot be plowed and planted. It is a vast wasteland leading to a land of abundance and promise. This wilderness is a land, verse 15 continues, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. Nahash saraf ve'akrav ve'tsima'on asher ein ma'im. Isn't that tough sounding words? Serpent, fiery, and scorpion, and thirsty ground, which no water. These words are given to parallel the words, the wilderness, the great, and the terrible. In them, there are no articles and the nouns except water, which is a plural noun, are singular. This then emphasizes and highlights the terrible nature of the land. Here, the word simaon or thirsty ground is introduced. It comes from tsame, meaning thirsty. It will only be seen three times. It is concerning this horrifying, terrifying, and deadly spot that Moses recalls the Lord's caring hand for Israel. Verse 15 going on, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock. Who, the bringing forth for you water from rock, the flinty. Bringing Israel out of Egypt was only a part of the process. There was the wilderness to traverse, and that wilderness was both inhospitable and unforgiving. And yet, the Lord was the leader of them and the bringer forth of water. In other words, their guide and sustainer. As before, the parallel to Christ should not be missed. Christ certainly led us out of bondage, but he also leads and sustains us on the path to glory. As Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult the trek is, he is there for his people, and he will see them through to the end of what he has purposed for them. If this is not true for Israel, it is true for none of us. And neither Israel's disobedience nor ours will affect the final outcome of what is promised. In this verse is another new word, halamish, or flint. It will be seen five times. It comes from halam, meaning to be strong or healthy, or to dream. Not only did the Lord bring water from the flinty rock, but Moses says it was he, verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. Ha ma'al kilcha man bamidbar. Who the feeding of you, manna in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the land is barren. Without water, nothing will grow. Without the growth of vegetation, there is nothing to eat. And yet, Israel survived through the ordeal. The Lord himself became the feeder of Israel through the giving of manna. From verse 14 to verse 16, Moses describes four aspects of the care of Israel by the Lord. He is one, the bringing out of you from land Egypt, from house slavery, 
Two, the leading of you in the wilderness, the great and the terrible. Three, the bringing forth for you water from the rock, the flinty. And four, the feeding of you manna in the wilderness. One can see Christ in each description. He redeems us from bondage to sin, meaning the power of the law, Galatians 3, verse 13. He leads us through the trials of this earthly life, Philippians 1, verse 6. He gives us of the Spirit, 1 John 4, 13, and he feeds us with himself, John 6, verse 54. As is consistently seen in such passages, Israel as a collective is given as a type of each one of us. Verse 16 going on, which your fathers did not know. This is a general repeat of verse 3. The manna was to be instructive. The fathers had never known it, nor had those who had received it known it. It was something entirely new. In a place where no food could be obtained, food was made available. This was so, verse 16 continues, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Le ma'an anotecha, u le ma'an nasotecha, le hetivcha be'acharitecha. To end purpose, he might humble you, and to end purpose, he might test you to do you good in your latter end. Everything about the process has an end goal and is thus given with a set purpose. The end spoken of here, then, is to be the result of the time of humbling. Thus, it is entry into the promise. The humbling in the manna, however, began before the giving of the law. Therefore, the manna was to be a step into the time of the law. But Israel failed, even after the giving of the law. They did not enter the promise, and yet they continued to be sustained for the entire 40 years in the wilderness. Thus, the end obviously speaks of their actual entry into the promise. Understanding this, the only two references to the manna in Deuteronomy are in this chapter. The first was in verse 3, and now Moses refers to it again here. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And then in this verse, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do you good in the end. In the end, the purpose of the humbling, the hungering, and the manna was a test. How does one do good? By living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord and by a continued dependence on the mercies of the Lord. As we know, Christ is the word of God. He is the embodiment of all that proceeds from the Godhead, and he is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, for God to do good to Israel in the end means that Israel must come to the one who embodies the words now being given by Moses. David lived by the word of the Lord, even if he didn't always obey it. Others obeyed the word of the Lord, but they didn't live by it. Others didn't either. Thus, as much as anything else, the precept spoken here by Moses is one which ultimately involves faith and a right condition of the heart. That is clearly seen in the next words. Verse 17, then you say in your heart, Ve'amarta bilvavecha, and you say in your heart. The thought now returns to the words of verse 14, when your heart is lifted up, and the time in Canaan. Moses has explained that which led up to entry into Canaan and the purpose of everything that occurred in the process. But the tendency of man is to look around, see all of his wealth and his many possessions, and to say, verse 17 going on, my power 
and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Have we all done that from time to time? Again and again, the record of Israel reveals this attitude. It happened to Rehoboam, it happened to Uzziah, and it happened to King Hezekiah. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. This is the lesson that Moses is conveying to the people. The Lord put them through times of want in order for them to remember him in the times of abundance. Essentially, he is saying, remember where you came from. If not for the Lord, you would still be there. Remember the goodness of the Lord. As he next says, verse 18, and you shall remember the Lord your God. For Israel, everything is contingent on remembering the Lord, the God of Israel. If they forget him, then everything else falls to the wayside. The relationship is broken, and they will suffer. If they remember him, then all will be well with them. Again, Moses confirms this, verse 18 going on, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Moses now uses the same words, power and wealth, that he used in the previous verse. There he spoke as if one of Israel, my power and the height of my hand have gained me this wealth. Here it says otherwise. It is the Lord who gives you power to get wealth. Only in the recognition that the Lord is the giver of the ability will Israel be right with him. And Moses says that they are to acknowledge this is so, verse 18 going on, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. The covenant Moses is referring to is that which was sworn to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. As he said in Exodus 33, then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. That is repeated in Leviticus 26, also while the law was being given. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The words, as it is this day, mean that Israel is right on the banks of the Jordan. The promise is established, and in a short amount of time, they will cross over into the land. And yet, Moses has been speaking about the time in which Israel is in the land. Thus, the words, he may establish his covenant, are ongoing. The covenant is established, and it will remain so as long as Israel remembers the Lord. That is evidenced by the next words, verse 19. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. There is a stress in the Hebrew that is missed in the English. Twice, Moses repeats the same word to intensify the warning. If forgetting you will forget, perishing you will perish. However, the first repetition is second person singular. If you, Israel, forget. Well, the second repetition is second person plural. You all of Israel will perish. It is a hugely important change. The Lord does not say that Israel will perish, meaning the nation. Only those of Israel will perish. Israel, the nation, must be attentive to the words being presented to them. If not, punishment will come upon Israel, the people. The Lord will only establish his covenant with the fathers as long as Israel remembers the Lord. In forgetting him, 
and in serving other gods, the promised curses of the Mosaic Covenant will be meted out upon them. This was true in the exile by the Assyrians. It was true in the exile by the Babylonians. And it was true in the exile by the Romans. Israel perished because they forgot the Lord. And again, Moses says to them, verse 20, As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish. Everybody hear that? As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish. The word translated here as nations is goyim. It is the plural of goy, meaning a Gentile. Thus it can mean nations or Gentiles, people, heathen, and so on. It is even used to speak of Israel as a people at times, such as in Exodus 19.6 and so on. Out of 27 translations checked for this sermon, all 27 use the word nations, and they are all incorrect. Moses is being absolutely specific. If Israel, the nation, forgets, Israel, the people, will perish. Now in this verse, it says, as the Gentiles, or people, not nation, whom the Lord destroys before you, plural, so you, plural, shall perish. A comparison is not being made to the nation of Israel, but to the people of Israel. Otherwise, it would mean that Israel, the nation, would perish like all of the other nations. Does everybody see this? The importance of this is immense. Moses has been speaking to Israel in the singular since we started today, and indeed since verse 1 of this chapter, when the only other second-person plurals were used. Only in the last clause of verse 19 does he switch to the plural, and that continues here. The change is so obvious and so striking, and yet it is completely passed over by the hand of the translators, as if the Lord could be unfaithful to his promises. Such will never be the case. What is happening is that Moses is now telling the people that they are actually no different as individuals than the people of the nations whom they are to dispossess. They will be treated exactly the same. Though Israel the nation is peculiar and unique, Israel the people are just people, something I'm sure that they would hate to hear. Moses tells them that they, like the peoples whom the Lord destroys before them, will likewise be destroyed. Does everybody see how important translating the word goyim is? It can mean nations. Here, it cannot mean nations, or you've got a contradiction in who the Lord is. It must say peoples, or it must say the groups, you know, something other than the nations themselves. What did I say there? Uh, Israel, uh, people, Gentiles, or peoples. That's what it should say. It's a very important change that has happened. So how should it read, People or Gentiles. It should not say nations. Because if he's making a comparison, if he makes a comparison with nation to nation, that means Israel, the nation, can be destroyed, and that will never happen. So that word should be translated either as peoples or Gentiles, and nothing else. And then the you, you, the people, plural. Everybody got that. That's how important this is. I'm glad you're asking these questions in the middle of a sermon. Normally, I'd be very upset at you, but this is that important <laughs> that you understand your theology. This is that important. All right, verse 20 finishes with, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Here Moses uses the word ekev, or because, for the second and last time in Deuteronomy. It was used in verse 712, and now here. It speaks of consequence, and so the word because is fine. But I will again explain the word's etymology to you to help you get its meaning. It comes from the verb akav, meaning the hind part, or following after. That comes from the noun akev, meaning the heel 
or a footprint. So you're following after you see the footprint. What Moses is conveying is that one thing will be the consequence of the other. Just as the peoples of the land were vile and were set to perish, the people of Israel can expect the same for their conduct. Where one foot steps, so will the next. As I was typing this sermon for you today, I came to verse 19 and the change to the plural, and it actually brought tears to my eyes. Before reading the Hebrew, I could not reconcile in my mind how the nation could be treated the same as the other nations. When I realized the change to the second person plural, I was moved enough to stop right then and message Sergio, and he and I shared a few messages as I conveyed the faithfulness of God to him concerning Israel. The word of the Lord is about many things, but one of the things it is clearly and unambiguously about is God's faithfulness. The Lord made a covenant with Israel, and he will never, never, never break faithfulness with them. As a nation, they will stand. Salvation came at their calling, and it continues on forever. As a group of people, they will perish. Not entirely, but in relation to their conduct before him. Looking for a New Testament parallel to the passage we have looked at today, we come to 2 Peter chapter 1. I love to cite this in Bible classes. There, Peter speaks of the calling of each person, the call to put their faith into practice, and of the consequences for not doing so. Like national Israel, the Lord has made a covenant with us that he will never break. This goes so far as our actually forgetting the Lord completely. Like Israel, who has done just that and remains a nation, we can go so far from the Lord that we actually forget that we were once saved, but he never will. I have somebody that loves to accuse me of being a false teacher because I believe in eternal salvation. Once saved, always saved, or whatever catchphrase you want to call it. And I finally found out why. It's because his sister departed from the Lord, and he's bitter about it. And I said, poor you, you're having a pity party over yourself instead of looking at the Bible in proper doctrine. We don't look at our emotions. We talked about that in a prophecy update. We don't look at what we think or what we feel. We look at the word of God. If she was saved, she is as far from the Lord as she can be right now, and yet she is still saved. And he can't understand that. He thinks my wife is gone or my sister is gone and, and she's lost her salvation. He has no clue about the nature of God, and it's seen right here in these Old Testament passages, which we will now read. Here is how Peter explains it. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, this is him calling us, by glory and promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Mm -hmm. Having escaped means past tense. It is done. But also for this very reason, and here's what happened if you don't do what Moses is saying in today's verses, and you don't take Peter's advice in these verses here, because they're saying the same thing. National Israel, you as an individual Christian, here are the results of you not being faithful to the Lord, okay? Consequences, that's the word I was looking for, thank you. But also for this very reason, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. Let's go back to knowledge. Does everybody know where you get the knowledge from? That's right. There's only one source. It's right here. It's called the Word of God. And I will tell you this, that you're probably, you're probably not going to get it on your own. This is a big book that's been studied by people for millennia. And we work off of the shoulders of other great people who have held to this Word. So if you're not attending the Thursday night Bible study... That's my plug for the Thursday night Bible study. 
virtue to knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. If you want to break down of that entire set of do these things, go to my commentary on 1 Peter, and you can read about it, and it goes on forever, but I get the point across to you eventually. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. Get ready, folks. For he who lacks these things, think of that guy's sister who departed from the Lord, is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed. It's done. You've just forgotten. You've gotten so far away from the Lord that you've forgotten that you were cleansed. Peter never says that person has lost his or her salvation. He simply says they've forgotten. They've walked away and they're in a life of woe and trial. He has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things that he just talked about, you want me to read them again? No, go ahead. Just read them yourself later. If you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not here to question anybody's salvation. That will not happen. But if somebody is saved, they are saved and they will be saved. That's not my choice who he saves. He reads the heart. I don't. But if that person is truly saved, that person is saved forever. Even if they have walked away from the Lord and forgotten that they were saved. The God we serve is awesome, glorious, and beautiful. He is ever faithful to his unfaithful people. And he will never, never, never forsake those who come to him by faith. If you want proof of that, look to Israel. If you want reassurance of that, come back to Deuteronomy 8 verses 19 and 20, and remind yourself of this fact. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given us an eternal hope and an absolute guarantee of our salvation. Praise be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. I just feel so bad when people struggle with that type of theology. And I've seen this many times. It's not just this one person. I've seen a guy in Australia it used to be on our old Christian discussion board when they used to have those things. And he would fight against once saved, always saved. My son walked away from the faith. It's always about me. When you hear somebody talking about loss of salvation, it's always about me. My son, my wife, my daughter, my whatever. He has no idea if they were ever saved or not. But if they are, they remain saved. I've seen this again and again and again. You get to the heart of the matter with somebody that believes that they can lose, a person can lose his salvation, and it is always about them. It is never about the proper handling of God's word, which says that will not happen. And we have this Old Testament example for us to see and to think on and to live by, and we've got all of the examples of the New Testament. Yes, there are verses that are very complicated in the New Testament where people rip them out of their context and they say, see, you can lose your salvation. If you want to read the proper analysis of it, just go to my website and read that particular verse. I've done a commentary on it and it'll be done. Yes. Now, some people believe uh, they have, well, some people have heart knowledge and some people have knowledge. That, I just said this. I do not read the heart. Jesus Christ reads the heart. Right. If somebody is saved, they are saved. If they have a head knowledge and they don't have a heart knowledge, that's between them and the Lord. They are not saved. That's fine. That is not my choice. I'm not even going to get into that. I have no idea. All I know is that if your heart is right with the Lord, which it says Old Testament and New, you are circumcised, you are saved. And I understand what she's saying because there are, there are people in seminaries that teach the word of God that are so far from the Lord that it is amazing. 
okay? Just because you have a head knowledge does not mean diddly, all right? That's important for us to understand is that we have to be right with the Lord in our heart. And if you're not right with the Lord, I would ask you today, because here we are, we're at the end of a sermon that was very difficult. It took a long time to get through those verses, and it took a lot of emotion out of me when I got to that last one. It was wonderful to see that, because I was questioning in my own heart, how could he say this in his own word? And all you have to do is go to the the, uh, verb. Is it plural? Is it singular? Or the pronoun, I should say. It's all you needed to do. But nobody does that. Now, the King James Version will give you ye and thy and thou, and so you can read it. But they still said the word nations. So it's got a contradiction right in it. All right? We need to be careful about this word because this word is important. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, and that is recorded in this word. And every single thing that we determine about our walk with the Lord, our salvation from the Lord, everything comes from this word. So please get into this word. Like that lady I read during the prophecy update today, she's read it every day of her life since she found the Lord and she's just excited about it today as she was before when she first started reading it because the glory that is portrayed in this word concerning Jesus. It says that he came to die for our sins, implying you're a sinner. It says that he was buried, implying that he was really dead. He didn't swoon or any of that crazy stuff that these people like to put out. And he was resurrected from the dead, meaning he had no sin of his own because the wages of sin is death. He came out of the grave proving he had no sin. But by going into the grave with your sin and coming out without any sin, that means your sin is in the grave forever. Eternal salvation is right there in those lines of the gospel if you just simply think them through. Your sin is gone, and then it says you're in a new covenant now where sin is not imputed. Well, if your sin is gone and you're no longer imputed sin, you tell me how you can lose your salvation. It is impossible. I got a closing verse here for you from 1 Corinthians 4. It is verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Paul's just using Moses' words in a different way to a different audience, but he's saying the same thing. Don't let your heart be lifted up. Don't do that. Trust in the Lord and thank him for everything you have. If you've got a big house or if you live in a van, it doesn't make any difference. You are the Lord's. That's all that matters is that you are the Lord's. Everything else is just stuff that we have until we are moving on to glory. Next week, Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 6. If it were up to you, your state would be a mess. It's entitled, Not Because of Your Righteousness. That'll be your 31st Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you, this Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem for you, but before I do, I've got a, I think this is a difficult question, but some astute person is going to get this. In verse 20, we saw the word ekev. Remember the heel following after, which is translated as because. One thing leads to another. You're following after because, okay? In verse 20, we saw the word ekev. That, as you know, comes from the verb akav, to follow at the heel or to supplant or to trip up and so on. Whose name? What prominent figure is derived from the word akav? Very good. Who said that? Oh, my gosh. She didn't even hesitate. We, you can, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a, a, a 
flight around on this, and I'm going to let you take that home. That was Jacob. Remember, Jacob is the heel grabber. He's the one who follows after. It, it's the most marvelous pictures of Christ in those sermons. I thought people would sit here for about five minutes, and eventually somebody would get it. That was that was outstanding. Did you look at my notes before? That was that was marvelous. That, that was a tough one, but that was really marvelous. Let me check something. We're going to uh, uh, read the poem, but I, I have to check something. Hang on one second. I just, I'm struggling with something, so hang on here. Um, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Hang, give me one second here. This will take just a second. Um, okay, yeah, no, that's not going to work. Uh, wait a minute. No, it's definitely not going to work. Okay, all right. Um, got a poem here for you. It's called, And You Shall Remember the Lord Your God. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God. For the good land which he has given you, to him you shall shout with joy and applaud. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, as to you I say, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied too, and all that you have is multiplied, listen to the warning that I am giving you. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from your distress, from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water to drink, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, you must stop, consider, and think who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, even so. Then you say in your heart cunningly and by stealth, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Then you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So to you I say that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish, famine, destruction, and mayhem. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish on the path you trod, because you were not obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be confident and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, even when we're unfaithful, and we thank you that you have saved us despite ourselves, and even if we forget and walk away from you. The word is written, and it cannot be changed. These things are certain truths, and so help us not to feel sorry for ourselves or for those around us that we are emotionally attached to, but instead to hold to your word and what it says, and to have the confidence that will keep us from wavering in our faith and being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. May it be so to your glory. May you be exalted in us as we pursue this wonderful word that you have given us with such marvelous little insights Thank you, Lord God, that you have not forsaken Israel, the nation, and you will never forsake your people who have come to Christ. We thank you and we praise you in his beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, before we switch over to communion, I got something to do. I, I've been very distracted for the past five minutes, if you can't tell. Um, 
I've got to do this, so let me see. This may not work, but uh, oh, it's connecting. Hey, Charlie. Hey, how are you doing? Let me get my thumb off there. Okay, we got a congregation here that wants to say hi to you. You got a word for them? Sorry, what? Have you got any word for a congregation that wants to hear from you? Yeah, right here. Can you say it? I don't know. Can you see it? I'm sorry, folks. He's not going to make it in time. Yesterday morning, Sergio uh, decided they just decided we're coming to Florida. And so they booked, and they got on a plane last night, and they flew all night, and they arrived this morning, and they're uh, about Charlotte Harbor right now. So they're not going to make it. They were going to surprise you, but they will be here for a while, so you don't have to worry about that. Don't pester them for a couple days. They're going to need a lot of sleep, but uh, here they are, and they, they could not make it in time. So uh, where are you exactly? Give me the mile marker. One seventy-three. So we're at two fifteen. So they're really close, but they're not. They're just going to go back to the hotel because we'll be closed by the time they get here. But we we're so happy you're here safely. We love you very much, and uh, we'll be looking forward. You know what happened? I'm going to tell you why this happened. Can you still hear me, Sergio? Yeah. It's because for the past week I've been saying we have a smoked turkey and a regular turkey for <laughs> Thanksgiving, and I've been I've been saying this and I've been saying this, and finally I know it just ate him up, and so. I think it was Thursday night. I said, guess what we're having at Bible class tonight? And I said, we're having pizza. And he was like, oh, and he's giving me all these bad emoticons. Well, now they get to come and have Thanksgiving at yeah, Charlie Garrett's house. So. Book flight. Yeah. Book flight. As soon as we said that, he booked the flight. So there you go. Isn't that special? So you will get to see him. You're, when, it, when is your flight back? Okay, so they'll be here. They'll be here through Christmas. All right. So there you go. So you got plenty of time to see them. Don't pester them. Let them have some time off before they go. And I got lots to talk to them about. So I want to have some time with Sergio. But I have a question before I let them go. Where else in the United States of America would you go to church and see Sergio and Rhoda show up on on Sunday morning? It won't happen anywhere else. You're at the Superior Word, and it won't happen anywhere else. So I want you to know how much we love you. We're thankful you came, and we're glad that Rhoda was sleeping a while ago. She was out of it, but she's woke back up. So there you go. Okay, we're going to let you go, and you guys have a wonderful drive. Be safe. And uh, he said he can't wait to see you all next Sunday. And you guys are invited to dinner tonight if you can make it, all right? If you can't, I understand, but Hedico's got food ready for you. All right, we'll see you guys. And we need to go jumping off the dock anyway, okay? <laughs> All right, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Oh, it's okay. We do it all the time. Uh, you're not going to find that in any other church in America or anywhere in the world. When, when he gets a hankering to come to the U.S., this is where he's going to come. This is superior word. So there you go. Okay, we've had a poem. You noticed I was slurring through the whole poem. I kept thinking... During the I'm trying to think, should I, should I tell them? Should I call them? Should I just wait? But eventually it'll get out on Facebook and then everybody's going to know. I wanted you to know first. So I'm sorry. They, there's no way they can make it by the time we're done. So here we go. Um, let's see here. It was close. They thought they could make it, but they couldn't. So here we go.